Hey everyone, and welcome to Livingston First Church. We're so glad you're joining us today. We really hope you're ready to hear a great message from the Word of God. So prepare your hearts, prepare your ears, and get ready to receive a blessing from the Lord. Be blessed. Okay, well, it is Mother's Day. But you guys uh, know better than to expect a Mother's Day message. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Uh, you're just going to have to deal with it. We're, we're working through sort of a series. I believe these are keys for revival. Uh, but in the, the format of spiritual warfare, we've been talking about how Appalachia was established through Scott-Irish immigrants who were fleeing uh, persecution from the uh, Church of England, came uh, to bigger cities on the East Coast, were rejected by uh, their Dutch and English counterparts, and created clans and, and cities in the mountains of Appalachia. Uh, and we're working through breaking the spirits of rejection, breaking the spirit of clanism, and breaking the spirit of rebellion off of us so we can then be conduits of heaven for Appalachia. Okay? So we went through rejection last week and uh, talked about how all of us experience rejection in our life in the same way these immigrants were rejected by other immigrants, really. Uh, we have to learn to be accepted by God regardless of how men reject us, right? Today we're gonna talk about isolation and clanism. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Just gotta say that one more time. <laughs> <laughs> so how many of you know you don't actually have to be alone to isolate yourself? Did you know that? Plenty of people isolate themselves inside of community. And it's actually becoming part of American culture. Uh, I, I admit, even my own family, sometimes we are in a car driving somewhere and all of us are, except for the driver, thank God, are looking at different screens, right? And we're isolating ourselves even though we're in community. And that happens in the church in Appalachia, but it's starting to become more normal in the culture of our country that we like to isolate ourselves inside of community, right? So how does that relate to clanism? When I say clanism, I, I mean the tendency to break off and create clan-like communities, okay? Not in a negative sense, sort of, and you'll find out. But when we isolate ourselves in community, we usually do it inside of communities that will allow us to isolate ourselves, right? We, we work hard to try to not let that happen at First Church, but at the end of the day, you're your own person. You can do whatever you want to do. You have the freedom to do that. But it's kind of hard to isolate yourself here, isn't it? There's always somebody texting you and checking up on you, and eventually, you're gonna get confronted, right? It just happens here. We're still in that sweet spot of like 100 people where that's still possible, where a lot of people don't fall through the cracks. But did you know that clanism and isolation is common to this region of the country? Think Hatfield and McCoys. Have you ever been to the, uh, the Gatlinburg uh, dinner show? I have not yet, but I really wanna go. It's about the feud that originated between two family clans in Appalachia, one being the Hatfield and one being the McCoys. McCoys. How many of you know there's no recorded history on how that feud started? 
There isn't. They suspect it was something that happened during the Civil War over a dispute about hogs, but nobody really has any documented history to prove why the Hatfield and McCoys are still fighting. They just are, right? But did you know if you're a Hatfield, you're not necessarily accepted in the McCoy clan, but you're certainly accepted inside of the Hatfield clan and vice versa. You're even looked at as normal, right? How many of you know that in Overton County, there's 140 churches? 140. And when you hear that, you can kind of think like, oh, praise God, like God is spurting up churches everywhere. Well, not quite. <laughs> in, in fact, if I told you that all the, over half of those churches weren't started by a, a breakoff or division, I'd be lying to you. And that's sad isn't it? That there's probably close to 50 churches in Overton County that were planted due to some sort of discourse or division. That's, that's really sad. It's a fractured body. Typically in these small break-offs, there's an us versus them mentality. Because how many of you know when you break off from a group to start a new group, there's got to be an enemy in order for you to validate why you're breaking off into a new group, right? And I don't want to name any like names, but there are denominations and church groups that really live and embody that us versus them mentality. Everybody else is wrong and probably going to hell, right? That's a real thing. It's a real problem. In fact, it's more normal for that to be the case in this area than it is for there to be unity among the body, isn't it? As sad as that is, that's the truth. This leaves a church divided and unable to grow in maturity because God uses people to grow people, doesn't he? Somebody after the Shiloh service said, I call that my sandpaper brother or my sandpaper sister. That's really kind of clever, right? The, the more you rub together, the more you rub off of each other. Iron sharpens iron. See, there's a capacity of growing inside of God's grace that requires that you do community with difficult people, people that you don't like, people you would rather not be around, but you choose to do life with them because you know it builds the body of Christ. See, and clanism goes, no, 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 no. You deserve to be with people who accept you the way you are. <laughs> and that sounds nice on the outside, but what that actually means is that community is about you, not community. Right? And then the separation happens and the division happens. So, again, if we will only do community with people we want to do community with, we are actually choosing not to grow in God. Diversity builds community. Conformity is a form of control. You guys ready for this? Control is a form of manipulation. One more step. Manipulation is a form of witchcraft and rebellion against God. Ooh, I don't want to do witchcraft. Neither do I. <laughs> Witchcraft is ungodly gained control, which is rebellion from God-ordained authority. Ah, I said it. <laughs> I'd still love you, and I hope you love me. 
<laughs> Jesus speaking in John 13, verses 34 through 35. Just go there real quick. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So Jesus, right before he's about to be crucified, he's hanging out with his disciples and he gives some last minute instructions, like a Hail Mary instruction, right? It's like right before he's, he's about to leave them. He says, guys, I need you to commit to loving one another. Now, why do you think Jesus felt like he needed to say that? Well, because he'd been spending time with these guys and they had a really difficult time loving each other. In fact, most of the time they were fighting on who deserved more prestige or, or trying to position themselves to be closer to Jesus than the other, right? So Jesus knows this and he sees this and he goes, guys, you know what? I realize that all of you have a problem with doing community, but I want you to commit to loving one another. Because when you commit to loving one another, despite your differences, you actually broadcast to the community around you that you belong to me and that I'm with you. You know, I see this when I do door-to-door -door ministry. I can't even preach gospel. I can't preach Jesus to people because they can't receive what I'm saying because I'm not affiliated with their group. Think about that. Your, your, your affiliation is so strong and so powerful, you can't even hear the gospel of Jesus. That's terrifying, isn't it? But the thing is, we're all susceptible to this. We all have this ten tendency to want to huddle together in groups that validate our brokenness, really. So it's vital that we understand this and that we go to war against it. How many of you know if you don't learn to fight for freedom, you'll confuse freedom with living in bondage. If you don't learn to fight, you'll just grow used to being in bondage. So we have to learn to fight. And fighting is messy, isn't it? You ever watch like Braveheart, the scene after the battle where everyone's like laying on the ground injured, oh, just end my life, right? It's like terrible. Like, think about that. King Saul wanted his armor bearer to like stab him in the belly instead of letting the Philistines get him. That's gruesome, right? War is not pretty. It's really nasty. It creates messes sometimes, but it's vital that we learn to fight. Because if you don't learn to fight, you'll let an enemy ruler determine how you live. Okay, amen. When we feel rejected and offended in the community God has called us to, it's human nature for us to desire to leave in search of another group of people that will validate the brokenness that we feel. That's normal. How many of you know that? It's normal to feel like it would be easier to find another group of people that would make you feel better about yourself. You have that desire, right? That's not a bad thing necessarily. We have to understand we have that desire, not so that we will, but so that we will learn to find whole community inside of the community God has placed us in. Because what happens if we don't? 
We leave the community God placed us in, we find another community, and for a season it feels good to be plugged into that community, but the things that caused you to be offended in the previous community eventually make their way out again, and lo and behold, the cycle continues, and the fence reigns in your heart, doesn't it? It's the truth. It's like a, a Band-Aid on a flesh wound. The blood's going to get through eventually, isn't it? A lot of gory uh, imagery today. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> so Jesus taught us how to receive freedom from this cycle, and it's called healthy confrontation. Go to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. <laughs> Guys, and I'm just as guilty as everybody else. Again, this is not me preaching to anybody. This is the stuff that I've been wrestling with over the last eight years of being a part of this community, learning how to get over myself, right? So this is not like, oh, I'm finally getting my chance to just bludgeon you with the Bible on a Sunday morning. This is what I've learned. Okay. Verse 15, Jesus teaching his disciples how to do confrontational community together. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. So the first thing Jesus teaches us in dealing with conflict inside the community is learning how to do Healthy confrontation. When we think confrontation, typically our mind goes to confrontation bad. Netflix good, confrontation bad. And I'm with you. I'd much rather watch Netflix than confront somebody I have conflict with. It's true. But in order to do community well, we have to understand that confrontation can be both bad and good. Confrontation led by your flesh is bad. Confrontation led by the Holy Spirit is good. How do you tell the difference? How do you know if the confrontation you're heading to is led by your flesh or the Holy Spirit? Well, I think it's pretty simple. If your goal or your aim is to bludgeon or be victorious or to prove that you are right over the other person, you're being led by your flesh. Because the goal then is to build your own kingdom, right? If your goal is to find common ground and resolution with the other person you're in conflict in, then you're led by the Holy Spirit because your goal is then to build the kingdom of God despite difference. Does that make sense? So, confrontation led by the flesh, bad. Confrontation led by the Holy Spirit, good. How do you tell the difference? The desire of the outcome. Do you desire to defeat your opponent? Or do you desire to gain a brother and sister in Christ? Okay. So before you confront, and I'm learning this and it's taken a couple of years, you need to learn to pause and think about why you're offended and why you have conflict, right? It's really not a good idea to just, as soon as you feel the way you feel, run into battle to confront the other person. You need to understand why you feel the way you feel. 
So never try to explain to an uninvolved party about how you've been offended by somebody until you've confronted your offender, right? How unfair is that to bring somebody else into your offense before you've actually confronted the person you're offended at? That ain't right. Everyone deserves a chance to repent. Everyone. If you don't give opportunity for the person who offended you to repent and, and to be restored in relationship, what you're saying then is that I have become the judge of your life. And if you've become the judge of your life, you're probably trying to take God's job. And I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> If ever someone is telling you about the conflict they're having with someone else, it's your responsibility as a mature Christian to say to them, have you confronted this person you're telling me about? If not, you're complicit in helping offense and gossip be spread in your community. Ouch. Yeah, I know. What? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> If someone starts telling you how they feel about someone or something going on in your community, it's your job to ask them why they feel the way they feel. Okay? All right. Facts and truth are much more important than feelings when dealing with conflict inside of community. Feelings and emotions are great alarm sensors. They are terrible governors. You understand that? The way you feel is a great way to understand why you feel the way you feel. So feelings are important and God gave you emotions. God gave you feelings. So if you're not feeling and you're not using your emotions, there's another issue inside of you, right? But your feelings are not there to tell you how to live your life. God is. And God is truth. Okay, step two, sometimes this doesn't work. Sometimes you confront that person and you leave shaking and more angry than you've, and this has happened to me, more angry than you've ever felt in your life, right? You're like that person is as dumb as I ever thought they were, stupid and wrong, I knew it. <laughs> and that's, that'll happen. And when that does happen, it's time to invite somebody else into the conflict for accountability. And when I first read this, I read it as in, yes, it's time to build my army of other people to be offended with me so we can crush this stupid person who has made me angry. <laughs> That's pretty close, <laughs> right? That's not the case. Accountability is for your offender and for you. Right? How many of you know that even though you feel very passionately that the other person is a stupid moron, you could be wrong? <laughs> right? It could actually be you, and that the offense you feel doesn't really have much to do with them, but how you respond to relationship. So the accountability is as much for me as it is for the person I feel has offended me. Because that person you bring into the, to the mix can go, you know what, John, I see that you maybe could have taken that the wrong way, but I don't really think that that's their problem. I think that's your problem. It's true. 
You need accountability. You need somebody to say, hey, take three deep breaths and drink a glass of water because you're crazy right now and you need to take a break. Here's a, a Snickers bar, <laughs> right? You need that. I need that. How many of you know that if you are married and you don't fight in your marriage, there's a serious problem. But if you fight only according to how you feel and the emotions that are happening in the midst of your anger, there's also a serious problem, right? Sometimes we need somebody to step in and mediate and be, and be like, hey, both of you are bonkers right now. <laughs> it's true. Now that doesn't mean you take that person and use them as a tool to exploit the crazy that you only want to exploit inside of your, your, your opponent. It means that you're open and you say, you know what, Lord, I need to humble myself because the goal here is not to win. The goal is restoration and restoration might mean that I'm wrong and that the problem is actually just my problem. <laughs> Amen. In every point of the process, the goal is to restore relationship. We, we don't do conflict resolution to find a winner inside of the body of Christ. We do conflict resolution to restore relationship. If we did it to find a winner, Jesus would have went to the cross and he would have said, I told you, you stinking sinners. I knew you would put me on the cross. I'm God, I'm right. And now all of you must pay and suffer for all of eternity. That's what would have happened on the cross of Calvary. But Jesus took our sin upon himself to reconcile us to the Father. That meant he had to take your garbage onto himself so that you wouldn't carry it before the Father, he would. So you could be wrong. I didn't say it, Jesus did. So stay humble and be willing to concede that you don't know it all. Because people who don't know it all usually don't know God very well. Right? If you know it all, then you don't need God. And that's a sad place to be. Even still, that doesn't work sometimes. And it's necessary for the church and leadership to step in to discern between right and wrong. What does Jesus say to, to do when that happens? So let's say you're in a, a conflict and the conflict's not resolved through mediation. And now church leadership has to step in and discern between right and wrong. What, is, what does Jesus say to treat that person who's wrong as? A pagan and a corrupt, uh, a corrupt tax uh, collector. Now, when I read this, my flesh really wants to go, yeah, we got you. You're caught, you pagan tax collector. I knew it. And now everybody else knows that you suck, right? That's how I read it in my flesh. I'm just being serious. But here's the problem with that. A few passages up, Jesus is getting condemned by the Pharisee for eating with reputable sinners and tax collectors. Ah, shucks. I mean, we still have to love these people? Yeah. Discerning between right and wrong does not require the withdrawal of love. Right? Jesus doesn't even say to expel them from the meetings. And sometimes that has to happen, but he says, treat them as a pagan and a tax collector. And he's saying that not so that you'll withhold love, not so that you'll stop treating them like a brother and sister, but that you would understand that they're under a level of deception 
that is keeping them from seeing what you see. And if that's the case, then I have to treat them like somebody more uh, uh, sensitive, like more like a, a father treats a child than in the way I can treat somebody who has the same level of revelation, which would be like a brother to a brother. Do you understand that? So the goal, again, is not to, to create separation between people and to withdraw love until the guilty party is so punished and understanding of their punishment that they break. The goal is to understand how to continue relationship with this person, even though they can't understand the revelation of Jesus that you've already understood. That's a good word. It's about restoration. Remember, Matthew was a tax collector. And while he was collecting taxes, the gospel says, Jesus said, come and follow me. Now, understand, Matthew had to leave behind his career as a tax collector in order to do what Jesus had called him. But Jesus engaged him even still. He was knee deep in his sin. Okay, I hope you guys got that. Verse 18, I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. 19, I also tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three are gathered together as my followers, I am there among them. So you understand now why the enemy works so hard to bust communities up. Unity releases a greater measure of God's presence and power than any teacher, than any worship leader, than any prayer meeting ever could. You see, when we walk in one accord, remember the disciples were one in accord on the day of Pentecost, we actually create a habitation for God's presence to manifest in a greater presence. See, what the enemy likes to do is he likes to go, okay, understand that they're not doing it right. So you need to break off from that so you can do it right. And then that's how revival will happen. That's a lie from hell. What Jesus has clearly laid out here is I'm really not concerned with any of the gifts I've already given you because guess what? I gave them to you. Build as many houses as you want. I'm not going to be impressed. What I'm really impressed by is when broken people choose to love broken people and do community regardless of their brokenness. <laughs> it's vital we understand this. Fellowship brings God's presence and power in a fresh way. You typically will not pray with people that you don't like, will you? It's true. You won't pray with people you're offended at. I mean, that's just common human sense. But you can pray with people that you choose to love because God has commanded you to. Okay, maybe we didn't get that one. It's okay. <laughs> we first have to understand that unity releases a greater measure of anointing on God's people. Go to Psalm 133. I'm going to close with this. Verse one, how wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. 
For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head, that ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. Harmony is refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion, and there the Lord has pronounced his blessings, even life everlasting. Okay. So what, a, what an interesting little psalm, right? The psalmist is writing that, and he's trying to explain unity inside the body. And he starts with saying it's like the, the precious, sweet, sensitive oil on Aaron's head. No, that's not what he's saying. He starts with Aaron, because who's Aaron? Aaron's the guy that God chose to speak on behalf of Moses because Moses was insecure about his speech impediment, right? So he's like, guys, listen, understand unity and harmony is how we release the voice of God into the, into the lives of the enemy. Because who did Aaron talk to? Pharaoh, right? And then he says, it's like the anointing oil. How many of you know that Aaron was the first Levitical priest? He was the first one to be anointed a priest. Do you know how they anointed a priest back in those days? They anointed them with oil, sweet, fragrant oil, like a sweet perfume bath. No, that's not what they were doing. The oil ref represented two things. It represented that the presence of God rested on this person and that this person had the authority to minister in the presence of God. That's why we anoint with oil sometimes when people are sick. We're actually anointing them with the presence and the power of God. The oil means nothing. It's what it represents, right? And what does it say it does? It starts on the top and it actually begins to flow down the entire body. Whew. Do you see that? When people choose to live in unity inside the presence of God, it actually creates a canopy and a covering. Do you understand that? Doesn't matter how good the preaching is. Doesn't matter how good the worship is. Doesn't matter how good we are at praying. It doesn't matter if we do enough outreach. It doesn't matter the things that we do. If we choose to do real community where we love one another over ourselves, we actually release an anointing that nothing else can. Do you get why clanism is a, an active thing the enemy works at day after day. He doesn't want you to enjoy the other people you do life with. Because if you do, there's an opportunity for the power of God to move through your community in the way your works never could. You got to understand this because, man, I've been... Revival, come on, I want to see revival. I want to see this thing happen. Like, you know, what do we need to do? What do we need to change? And the Lord's saying, no, you don't get it. You can't do it. You're never going to be able to do it. You keep becoming religious in your effort to make it happen until you understand that just being a real community that loves one another more than themselves, you're never going to see this thing break open. And it's hard. I get it's hard because you know what? I suck. People suck. It's hard to do real community with other people. 
But if we get this thing, you become invincible because the little offenses that causes you to withdraw and to, and to isolate and to create micro communities inside of the larger community actually become irrelevant because you know the anointing comes when I choose to be real with you and you real with me. Let's stand up. We're going to pray. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's our hope and prayer that the Holy Spirit truly ministered to you through this message from the Word of God. If you'd like to know more, look us up at livingstonfirstchurch.com or follow us on social media. And we look forward to seeing you in person soon.